0: We're privileged again today to have Dr. Jim Dennison visiting with us in the pulpit. He will be back tonight. I hope you'll come back tonight, conclude our four sermon series. People from 203 different countries wake up every morning wanting to know what Dr. Dennison is thinking. And I'm I'm one of those in in the state of Texas who does so. If Baptists were to have a thinking apologist, Dr. Dennison would be he. Uh, Jim, come and lead us.
1: Would you pray with me, please? Father God, I bow before you, we bow before you with such gratitude for your grace, for the privilege of being in this place to worship you, to honor your name, to hear your word sung, and now to study your word together. Father God, I pray that you will now speak by the power of your spirit through these moments that we have together in your word. May your word be so living and active in our lives that when we're done, We not only will be drawn closer to you, but we will be more equipped, more empowered to be able to help other people know you as we know you. Father, make your reality real to each of us right now through your word, to your glory. As I submit this message, my mind, my thoughts, my life to you, in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open the Bible to John chapter four familiar passage, John chapter 4. And as you do that, I wish again to express my gratitude for the privilege of being here in this amazing congregation and in this wonderful place of worship. I travel a lot. I speak lots of places. And I have to tell you, nobody does it like this. The way that the choir and the music ministry leads you into God's presence every week, the way that Dr. Batson shares God's word and leads so effectively with such a servant heart and such grace. And then, of course, there's Robbie. And um, yesterday, Robbie texted me to see if we were in Amarillo yet. And I texted him back and said, was I supposed to be in Amarillo? And Robbie texted back and said, I'm going to my heart doctor and then getting my resume ready, I think was what he said. (laughs) To which I offered to be a reference on his resume, and that wasn't good enough. So it's a challenge. But Robbie, since you're taking me to lunch today, I love you. Okay? Are we having apple for lunch? Is that going to be the... Yeah, not that apple, I hope. It might be a little bruised by the time we're done with it. Were you surprised at how he dropped it on the ground instead of on Robbie? Were you grateful for that? Did you want him to drop it on Robbie? What was the... If we were voting, maybe we could have a caucus about that or something and you know, kind of get a poll or something going that appears to be going on these days. You know, That could be possible as well. Well, we're going to talk out of John chapter 4 together about the question that I've been asked to discuss with you today, that of those that are skeptics, those that are atheists, those that do not believe there is a God, want to get into that conversation by first of all showing you some images that could suggest that what you see is not all there is. So the first is a reminder to the gentleman in the room that in two weeks there's this thing called Valentine's Day, and it's good to know that now, gentlemen, here's... An example of a reason why (laughs) you can make your choice accordingly can't you the next image I threw in just because I really like it there you go well you wonder what the future looks like there don't we you know as a grandfather myself I could tell you that's a dangerous position in which to be all right so here is a lovely tranquil scene because you don't have the caption Isn't that intense? And the next image is really one of my very favorites. Okay, so there's the image. All right, now here's the caption. That's just terrible, isn't it? Isn't that just awful? Poor buddy, he'll never be the same. I like the face of the other guys too, they weren't happy with it either, you could tell. <laughs> They're all kind of, uh, kind of astonished there, aren't we? Kind of frightening. What you see may not be all there is. We could perhaps agree that that is the case. Here is Christ Church Oxford. I've gotten to go to Oxford every summer to teach a doctoral seminar for Dallas Baptist University, and we always go to Christ Church. This particular sanctuary was built in the completed in the year 1200, 1200. A.D. The roof is new, it was built in 1516, so it's new by British standards. So you're looking at this remarkable place of worship commissioned, recommissioned by Henry VIII. What you may not know looking at that particular structure is almost always, I've been there many times, almost always there are more people in the choir than there are in the congregation. The fact is that in Great Britain today, Four times as many Muslims go to mosque on Friday as Christians go to church on Sunday in Great Britain today. Harris polled at a study some years ago asking people in Western Europe if they believe God exists, any definition of God, some kind of higher higher power, some kind of of ultimate being. Does any kind of God exist? 62% in Italy say God exists. 48% in Spain. 41% 41% in Germany, 35% in Great Britain, 27% in France even believe God exists. You say that could never happen in America. But it's happening in America, of course. You see the mega churches. That's obviously like with church in Houston at the old summit, and you see these massive churches, and you think all is well in America, but the studies suggest otherwise. It's hard to tell on the slide exactly, but the only growing religious demographic in America are those who have no religion. That's the red line you see there. One in three under the age of 30 in America have no religion, they say. One in three. And 95% of the children of irreligious parents grow up to be irreligious, 95%. You say, yes, but this is Amarillo, right? Why am I needing to talk about atheism in Amarillo? As uh, Nick and I were getting off the uh, plane last Sunday, I pointed out to him in the airport last Saturday, pointed out to him in the airport right there on the wall, this massive display of churches in Amarillo. You've seen it, perhaps, going in and out of the airport. You drive around Amarillo and you see these massive churches, really. uh, As I say on every street corner, there are lots of big churches and lots of growing churches. You look at how your church is doing, how you're thriving, how you're growing, and you may think that what's happening in Europe and what's happening in parts of America could not happen in Amarillo. So I did a little study. I looked up something called the Association of Religion Data Archives. And according to them, From the last census, 2010, in Amarillo, your population was 251,933. That was your total population in the year 2010, they said. Of that population, 176,816 have a membership in some religious body. Now the vast majority are Christian, but that also includes Muslims, that includes Buddhists, that includes Scientologists, members in any religious body. So when you do the math, the result, according to the Association of Religion Data Archive for Amarillo, Texas, the result is 80,177, roughly one in three in Amarillo have no religious commitment of any kind. In Amarillo, around one in three. Well, don't feel badly about Amarillo. Your number's actually smaller than it is many places. When I was pastor of Park City's Baptist Church in Dallas, I wanted to know something about our demographics, so we commissioned a study. We discovered that within three miles of our church, three miles of our church, 144,000 people living within three miles of Park City's in, uh, in Dallas, Texas. Of that number, we called all the churches in that three-mile radius. We asked them their attendance on a Sunday. It came to 15,476. We doubled it because we assumed some in the three-mile radius drove out to go to church, although a lot we knew drove in, but nonetheless, and we wound up with roughly 114,000 people within three miles of Park City's Baptist Church, not in anybody's church on any Sunday. The topic I've been asked to discuss with you is a topic of increasing relevance in our culture. What would you say to the so-called atheist next door? What would you say to that one in three in Amarillo? What would you say to that person who really just doesn't believe, no matter what you believe? And they'll say that is just your truth, that doesn't have to be their truth, that's just your truth. And what would I say to a person who happens to hold that position today, here in this sanctuary or watching us by television, what would I say? Well, the topic for our discussion is in John chapter four, Jesus and the so-called woman at the well. You're familiar with the uh, geography in Israel. Down here, of course, is Judea. Up here is Galilee, and here in the middle is Samaria. Jesus has been down to Passover. He's making his way from Jerusalem back up to Galilee, up to Capernaum where he lives there. Typically, the Jewish people so hated the Samaritans, we'll get to that in a second, that they would cross over the Jordan River They would go on the east of the Jordan River and then cross back over. They would go completely around Samaria, but Jesus didn't do that. In fact, he made his way, as the text says, to a thing known as Jacob's well. That's what it looks like today, and that's a close-up of the well. It's 100 feet deep. You can still drink from it. I have drunk from Jacob's well. We don't go there anymore, it's in a part of the West Bank that tourists don't typically visit anymore, but back in the day we used to go every year and you can drink from Jacob's well. And so Jesus is there and in John chapter four, it says in uh, verse six that he was wearied from his journey, so he sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that's 12 noon, as we would calculate time. And then verse seven, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And here we discover the first of three principles I'd like to suggest to you today. It is the principle of establishing relationship with those you would seek to influence for Christ. Going to those who will not come to you, going to the Samaritan woman at the well who would never have come to Jesus in Galilee or in Jerusalem. It's a long story I'll try to make very short, but after the Assyrians had captured the ten northern tribes of Israel in 722 BC, they replaced a lot of the exiles with their own folks and they intermingled with the Jews and a half-breed race known as Samaritan was the result. That's how the Jews told the story. Samaritans completely disagreed with all of that, so the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, enormous enmity and prejudice between them. In addition, a rabbi would not speak to a woman in public, typically. Rabbis were sometimes known as bruised and battered rabbis. They'd walk down the street. If they might look upon a woman or a gentile, they would close their eyes and walk into walls, thus bruised and battered rabbis. And this woman is a social outcast. We'll discover later in the story she's had five husbands. The man she lives with now is not her husband. She has to go to this will, passing others at the heat of the day where there would likely be no one else there because she is such a social outcast. So here is Jesus speaking to a social leper, a female, a Samaritan, going to the person who would never have come to him. And that's the first step in building relationships with those who don't believe is to earn the right to share what you believe. So imagine yourself in a situation like this. Let's suppose, oh, just for argument's sake, let's say that a Muslim family has moved in down the street and they reach out to you and they start befriending you, they start building relationship with you. What they're wanting to do, of course, is convert you to Islam. Would simply sitting down with you and sharing the five pillars of Islam do that job? I hope not. I trust you're not going to convert anyway, but imagine what it would take for you to convert to Islam, or what it would take for you here in the sanctuary today to convert to Buddhism. Could I simply explain to you the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path, would that be enough? For you to give up what you have believed your entire life? For you to withstand the scrutiny and the outrage, perhaps, of your family? For you to make the kind of life change I'd be asking you to make. That's what you're asking a non-Christian to do. Especially someone committed to an atheistic position. If you don't build a relationship, you really haven't earned the right to share the good news. Ken Meadam, a blind singer and songwriter, a friend of mine, in one of his songs says, Don't tell me I have a friend in Jesus until you show me I have a friend in you. So we're first building relationship. Now, caveat, you're doing that because God loves that person, whether they ever love God or not. If you're doing this purely as a means to the end of trying to convert a soul, understand you can't convert souls anyway, only the Holy Spirit does that. But if they think this is a means to some end, of course they'll reject the relationship, as you would, as I would. If I thought the only reason my Buddhist friend was developing relationship was to make me a Buddhist, obviously. I've undermined the relationship. So you're building the relationship simply because you love God and you love your neighbor, simply because this is someone for whom Jesus died, simply because God loves them and you love them. You're going to the Samaritan woman who could never come to you. Now when you do this, you move into the second phase, and that is to anticipate objections. We build relationship and we expect objection. So you skip on down to verse 19. After Jesus has exposed the fact the woman has had five husbands, the person she lives with now is not her husband, she begins to try to divert the conversation. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So here's the story. Mount Gerizim in Samaria was the place where the Samaritans built an alternate temple after the Jews refused to allow them to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. In the second century before Christ, a man named Hyrcanus gathered together a band of Jewish mercenaries, and they destroyed that temple. Those are the ruins of it. Of course, the Samaritans, from then all through history, hated the Jews for having done so. Imagine that some competing world religion came to First Baptist Amarillo one day and destroyed this sanctuary in which your congregation has worshiped since 1929. Imagine the enmity that would exist. So that's the question that she's raising, but it's a diversion, obviously, from the conversation at hand. And Jesus responds, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But now he moves it right back to the point. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is Spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and truth. He's back to the point of Spirit and truth. So I build a relationship, and once I've begun to build that relationship, I should expect and be ready to answer the objections of the person with whom I'm sharing the gospel. So at this point, I need to impose on you a five minute apologetics lesson. All right? Apologetics has to do with methods of defending the faith. It's a, from the Greek word apologia. Be very grateful. Right now you're thinking, "Why well, didn't come to church for this?" Well, if you were one of my students, it would take us 16 weeks to do what we're going to do in about the next five minutes. All right. If you'd like to know more than we're going to do in five minutes or any number of good websites you can go to, you can go to our website, denisonforum.org, and you'll find there various essays, why Jesus, why believe the Bible, why believe in God's existence, uh, all sorts of faith questions that are addressed there on the website. So if you'd like more than we're going to do now, then you can go there and get all of that. What I want to try to do for the next few minutes is have a conversation with a skeptic around the most common questions that skeptics ask And I want to try simply to suggest to you the reasonableness, the rationality, the inherent logic of believing what Christians believe. Am I about to prove to you that God exists and the Bible is true and Jesus is the Son of God? Categorically not. You can't prove a relationship. Any more than an atheist can disprove that God exists or the Bible is true. Or Jesus is the Son of God. A relationship can't be proven. I can't prove to you that I like Robbie. In fact, Robbie would think there's very little evidence to indicate that relationship. But even if I bought lunch today, Robbie could say, well, you're just setting me up, which I probably would be. If I said nothing but nice things about Robbie, he would become paranoid, wouldn't he? And understandably so. What could I do to prove, to prove to you that I like Robbie, how could that be done? How could I prove to you that my wife loves me? How could I prove to you my respect for Dr. Batson? How could I do that? No relationship can be proven or disproven. All relationships require a commitment which transcends the evidence and becomes self-validating. You couldn't prove this was worth your time to be in worship today until you came. You examine the evidence but then you take a step into a relationship which transcends the evidence and becomes self-validating. You did that when you got married. If my wife had married me on the basis of proof, she would never have married me and probably never should have. If I had to prove I would be a good father, we'd never have kids. If you could prove that was the right job, you'd never take the job. If you could prove that was the right school, you'd never go to that school. Does that make sense? All relationships require a commitment which transcends evidence. and becomes self-validating. You cannot prove or disprove a relationship. So what we're going to do is look at some evidence, very quickly. First of all, for the existence of God, the very thing how he was discussing earlier relative to the law of gravity is the reasonableness, is the rationality behind believing that God exists. Well, to condense all of that very quickly, let me show you three arguments very quickly. The first is the argument from the existence of the world. It's known as the cosmological argument. If there's a cosmos, there must be a creator. The logic is very simply this. In the words of Jean-Paul Sartre and others, why is there something rather than nothing? If you believe life began as a Big Bang, where did the Big Bang get the material to make the Big Bang? If you say life evolved from a cell floating in a pool of water, where did the cell come from? Where did the water come from? An atheist, relative to this conversation, would be a person who believes that nothing produced something. Absolute nothing can produce something. Is it more reasonable to believe in a God who created from nothing or to believe that nothing itself could create something? Cosmological argument. The next argument, argument from design, sometimes called the teleological argument. All right, so you're going out to your car after church and Sunday school today and you happen to come across a rock in the parking lot and you're not surprised that there would be a rock there. But you come along a little further and you see an Apple watch. All right, I happen to have an Apple watch. My wife gave it to me for Christmas because apparently there's no technology I don't need, apparently. (laughs) I'm now getting adjusted to the fact that I wear a watch that is so much smarter than I am. This watch I happen to be wearing today not only tells me the time, it tells me the date, it tells me that it's 36 degrees outside. Right now my watch tells me my watch can read email, my watch can do text, my watch can do my heart rate, my watch can do so much more than I can do. It can give me news, it can give me news feeds, uh, I, this watch is kind of amazing, I don't know how, it, how all that, I don't even know how to do most of it actually. So I'm walking out to the parking lot and I see an Apple watch there. Would well, the thought occur to me that that just happened coincidentally, that all the electronics, All the various minutiae that create that watch, and the band, and the clasp, and the dial, and all of that just kind of happened to fall together in such a way as to produce that watch. Well, isn't the world infinitely more complex than a watch? It's a design argument. A third argument, known as the argument for morality, C.S. Lewis had a version of this, manual Kant had a version of it, basically asks, where did you get your sense of morality? Well, you got it from your parents. Where did they get theirs? Where did they get theirs? Where did they get theirs? At the end of the day, there's an argument for a moral lawgiver who gave the sense of morality which is intrinsic to human nature. Have I proven God exists? Of course not. Can an atheist prove God doesn't exist? Of course not. I'm trying to show you that there is remarkable evidence upon which to make a relational step that transcends the evidence and becomes self validating What about the Bible? Can I prove to you that this book is the Word of God? Of course not. That couldn't be done. How could you prove it's not the Word of God? What you want to do is examine the evidence. So with any ancient book, you ask four questions. First of all, can we trust the manuscripts we have? When the Bible was written, same time when Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars would be written or Tacitus or any ancient Work. It was done typically on papyrus and eventually on parchment. Here is what Codex Sinaiticus looks like, one of the oldest manuscripts that we have. That was in the British Library, now it's in the British Museum. I've actually seen a sheaf of it that's at St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai where it was discovered. So you're looking at these manuscripts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We do not have the original autograph, the original writings of any ancient writer. Because what they wrote on simply disappeared over time. It would be like writing on newsprint and leaving it out. For Caesar's Gallic Wars, we only have nine or ten ancient copies. The oldest copy is 900 years after what Caesar wrote. For Tacitus's Ancient Histories, we only have four and a half of his 14 books. And the oldest copy is 900 years after what Tacitus wrote. For Aristotle, we only have five ancient copies of any work of Aristotle. And the oldest copy we have is 1,400 years after what Aristotle wrote. For the Bible, for the New Testament especially, we have 5,000 ancient copies in Greek, 10,000 ancient copies in other languages, and the gap between what they wrote and what we have is 30 years for fragments and 300 years for books. Textual scholars tell us what we have today is 99.2% the original. And the 0.8% about which any question remains affects not one matter of doctrine, faith, or practice. The manuscript evidence for the Bible is remarkable. The evidence from fulfilled prophecy is remarkable. Most scholars would tell you there's something like 48 prophecies made about the Messiah, all of which Jesus fulfilled. Some would say 300, but most would settle around 48. So a mathematician some years ago determined the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight of the 48. One in 10 to the 17th power number looks like that. To illustrate that, fill the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Put a red dot on one. Lead me around blindfolded all day. At the end of the day, I reach down and pick up a silver dollar. The odds I picked up the dollar you marked are the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight of the 48 prophecies he fulfilled. What are the odds of his fulfilling all 48? 1 in 10 to the 157th power, that number looks like that. That number is larger than the number of electrons in the universe. And then you'd look at archeological evidence that is overwhelmingly supportive of the Bible, and you'd look at internal consistency. All of that to say evidence for Scripture is remarkable on the side of faith. And then one last question. How can I know that Jesus actually existed and that he is in fact the Son of God? So now you're looking at evidence outside the Bible. This is one of Tacitus' Annals, a first century writing Roman historian who documents conclusively that Jesus existed. He calls him Crestus and says that he was crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilatus and a most mischievous superstition broke out, he says. He was no friend of Christianity. I can prove to you without the Bible, based on the writings of Tacitus, Marabar, Serapia, and Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, and Josephus, I can prove to you that Jesus existed, he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, he was buried, and on the third day, his believers believed, his followers believed he was raised from the dead and worshiped him as a god. I can prove all of that without ever opening a Bible. And then we get to the question of the resurrection itself. This is the garden tomb place where many scholars believe Jesus was buried after he was crucified, and inside is the place where his body would have been laid. His head on this end and his feet down there, and of course the tomb is empty. So what became of the body? So the disciples stole the body, overpowered the guards, stole the body. Five hundred of them then saw the risen Christ, although he was a corpse, And 500 of them kept the story, and 500 of them died for a lie. A handful of Watergate conspirators couldn't keep the story straight. And yet we're to believe that hundreds and hundreds died for a lie. The same problem with the women stealing the body and then dying for a lie. The authorities stole the body, so the Christians begin proclaiming the resurrection, and the authorities are going to produce the corpse, which, of course, they didn't. Or they went to the wrong tomb. Joseph owned the tomb. The Romans had marked the tomb. Or Jesus didn't really die. He somehow survived the spear that pierced to the pericardial sac around his heart. And he survived being put in a uh, air, airtight shroud for three days. And he somehow vanished outside of that because John's Gospel tells us that the shroud was collapsed on top of itself. Not unshredded, but collapsed on top. And somehow he pushes aside the stone and he overpowers the cards and he appears through locked doors and he does the greatest high jump in history at the ascension. That's the swoon theory. At the end of the day, there is, no, there is no explanation for the resurrection or for the changed lives of Jesus' followers, but that the resurrection itself is a fact of history. So we're looking at evidence, remarkable evidence, that God exists and the Bible is God's word and Jesus is God's son. We're preparing ourselves for conversation. You don't have to know everything I've just said. Again, it's all on our website and other places as well. But you want to be praying. You want to be asking the Holy Spirit to prepare you for this conversation. You want to be ready to talk to this person about what you believe and why you believe it. And then finally, you build relationship. You have prepared yourself for questions. Now you're ready to bring the conversation to an actual presentation of the good news of God's love. And so in verse 25, the woman says to Jesus, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. And not only did she believe, she brought her into our village. And they came to believe as well. Francis of Assisi is often quoted as saying, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. I like the sentiment of that, but let me tell you, it is necessary to use words. If they see your life but don't hear the proposition of the gospel, they cannot be saved. I remember seeing a story years ago, a high school wrestler, his best friend was a guy on the wrestling team. Some, neither of them were believers. Well, some years later, right. as the story goes, this fellow became a Christian, and he wrote back to the other fellow, and he told him about his newfound faith and wanted this other person to trust in Christ as well, and he gets a letter back from the other person that shocked him, that said that, in fact, the other person was a believer. He had tried to live for Jesus all those years, tried to live a good life, didn't want to offend his friends, so that's why he had never shared the gospel with him. And the first person wrote back and said, how I wish you told me that. I considered being a Christian, but I looked at your life and said, if you could live that kind of life and not be a Christian, I don't need Christianity either. The day comes when you share the good news of God's love. No, the Holy Spirit will help you do that. The Holy Spirit will give you words to say. And the relationship you've built and the preparation you've made will be used by God to bring that person to know who Jesus is. And we trust by God's grace to know Christ. So if you're at that place and you have the chance to share the good news of God's love, it kind of feels like you're on trial, doesn't it? It Kind of feels like you're in a courtroom and you're the one on trial and the one you're talking to is the prosecuting attorney and they're trying to find a reason to condemn your story. Actually, Jesus is on trial. The person you're talking to is the jury. Satan is the prosecutor. The Holy Spirit is the defense attorney. You're just called to the witness stand. Your job is simply to tell what you know. The verdict is not on you. You may be the first person on the stand and never hear how the jury decides. You might be the last person and get to be present when the jury decides, hopefully for Jesus. Your job is simply to tell what you know when the defense attorney calls you to the stand. So build relationship, prepare for objection, ask the Spirit to lead you as you share the good news of God's love, and know that as Jesus in John 4 so you today, God will use your word for his glory, and I am proof of that. So let me close with this. This is College Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, beached on the Southwest Freeway. Back in 1973, they got a new pastor who wanted the church to start something called a bus ministry. It was a new thing back in the day, they got a school bus, put the name of the church on the side, went out knocking on doors, trying to find kids to ride the bus to church. My father had been a Sunday school teacher before he fought in the Second World War. He saw such horrible atrocities, he never went to church again. So I grew up in a loving home, but no spiritual life at all, and all my father's questions. If there is a God, why is there war, science and faith, evil and suffering, all of that? I had no interest in going to church at all. So in August of 1973, Julia Unger, Tony McGrady knocked on our apartment door, inviting my brother and me to ride the bus to church. We didn't want to go, but Dad thought we should have some religious exposure, so he put us on the bus. And that's how I heard the gospel. And it was in the lives of the other people in this 10th grade Sunday school class that I saw something I didn't have. And it was in reasoned conversations with the pastor and with Sunday school teachers and with church members that I was drawn to faith in Christ. I was that woman at the well. I would never have come to Jesus, so Jesus sent somebody for me. So here's the question. Who's waiting behind their door for you? Let's pray about that. Take this moment, if you would, just you and God. And in this moment, just you and the Lord, ask the Father to put that name on your heart right now. Ask God to put that face or that name on your heart. Who is that person? God would have you be praying for right now. God would have you be building relationship with right now. Pray for them right now. Ask God to show you how to take the next steps. Commit yourself to be ready for those conversations, to be ready for those questions and challenges. Ask the Lord to use you as Julian Unger and Tony McGrady were used in my life in 1973. Ask God to use you to help that person. No, Christ is Lord, do that right now. Father, I thank you that in August of 73, two men did what we're talking about today, and they came to me because I would never come to you, and you sent them and you used them, and you use their witness and that of others in that church, and I thank you that I will be with you forever because of them. Father, may I be as faithful today as they were. May we be as faithful as those who brought the good news to us. May we be used this week to share the good news of your grace in gratitude for your love, and may someone this week know Christ because we were here today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you see in eternity the person you helped know Christ, imagine the joy of that. God bless.
0: Thank you, Jim. Maybe you're here today and this is your day to profess the Lordship of Christ Jesus. The evidence is there, but the Holy Spirit has chosen today to work on your heart and on your mind. And maybe looking at the evidence and the presence of the Spirit that even today is your day to utter the most important words ever spoken, Jesus is Lord.